<laughs> My name's Don. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And by God's grace, I have been continuously sober since December 26th of 1967. You know, we say that to impress you. I don't want you to be impressed with me, but we need to be impressed with the fact that that's possible, that relapse is not a necessary part of recovery, okay? Somehow that's gotten lost in the last few years. About 11 years ago, God saw fit to put another psychopath in my life. (laughs) Well, that's who I get because I know who they are. Little fellow named Chuck, about five foot two, mean as a snake. He'd been sober eight years, counselor over at Hazleton, drank, got sober for a couple of years, became a counselor somewhere else, and drank, had two or three of those. By the time he came into my life, he really didn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. He came into our meeting and he got up in my face and just dared me to say anything meaningful. So I said, well, Chuck, what do you think of God? He said, I hate the son of a bitch. I understand that somewhere down the road we get a, all get a couple minutes with him and I can't wait for my turn. Tell him what I think of this deal. Now I'm going to go to hell happy and whistling and join my friends. I thought, well, that's good. You know, he's, he at least believes. We don't have that hurdle to get over. <laughs> we have an attitude problem. I come from the old school. And Chuck was so badly wounded, he needed a nurse for a while. So every day, I would put him in my car, and he'd ride with me and spew hate while I did my business. And I don't mind people spewing hate. I don't take it personally. In fact, I learned all kinds of new words. It was kind of fun. <laughs> so he'd come to my house every day. And we'd get in the van and we'd go. He told me out front, don't give me this big book shit. I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> no, he had and It didn't work. <laughs> don't panic. That's it. That's it. Thanks, Ron. if i sponsor you you must come to my house that's where it happens so that you can see how a recovered alcoholic and his family live the rest of it's academic so he was coming by a whole lot anyway this one particular day my wife would bake chocolate chip cookies And she gave us each one. (laughs) And we ate them, and Chuck said, that was good. Which to a cookie baker means, here, have a sack. So she gave him a bag of cookies. And we got back to the car, and he said to me, why would she give me a bag of cookies? I was able to say, well, Chuck, that's because she thinks you're part of the family. And it was at that moment, not through a meeting, not through the big book, not through anything else, at that moment, he changed. I saw it happen. He still didn't feel good, but he changed. So on his fourth birthday, I had occasion to be talking at a little conference, and my daughter baked him a huge chocolate chip cookie and we don't very often give tokens at home but he got his chip that day in front of him (laughs) I don't have any cookies this morning but this psychopath over here just celebrated three years of sobriety and I would like to give him a chip Tom knows how hard that is for me to do. I ran into the chip system in North Carolina and about made me crazy. 
This is a recognition of the power of God. I can promise you, he hasn't done nothing. <coughs> except show up and learn to pray and work with others. And that's really kind of what it's about. Isn't it? My home group is simply known as an AA group. We uh, looked in the traditions to see how we should operate. And the long form of third tradition says that only two or more alcoholics gathered for sobriety and they call themselves an AA group. So we do. We... Uh, we had a hell of a time getting the central office to register us under that name. <laughs> we meet at 6 o'clock in the morning every Friday morning in the basement of a community correction center so that we can be available to the inmates before they go to work, if they wish. And uh, because uh, we were meeting in a very plush apartment. Wonderful. And we realized one morning there's nobody new showing up here. So we're on the line now. And there's no dead weight at my group. You gotta really want to be there. Uh, <laughs> then we go to breakfast afterwards, and that's where the real meeting happens. Because during the meeting, and it still happens to me, and I know it happens to you, I hear part of what you're saying with part of my mind. The rest of my mind is working on what my response is going to be when it's my turn. <laughs> But when we sit down for breakfast, it just all hangs out. Anyway, Alcoholics Anonymous did not get me sober. God got me sober. And five and a half months later, brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And because this is where I was brought, and because you taught me about sobriety, and taught me how to live, I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is where my work is. This is where my life is. <clears throat> I'm yours. I'll do anything you ask. If it's reasonable. Uh, I've got a bullshit sector, so don't worry about it. It's a big blue book. <laughs> I was told if you, don't, if you can't reconcile what somebody says with what's in there, you either don't know enough or it's not true to ignore it. I'm searching around. You, you need to understand, please, that for 31 years I have lived with a sense of the presence of God. Where I am, God is. And I know that. So I have 31 years worth of stories to tell you. And I've got about 45 minutes to do it in. Okay. But let me tell you first. What a blessing you are to me, because about six years ago I had occasion in the middle of a very serious illness and some other things to be removed from my home in Colorado and taken to North Carolina where they don't even speak English. <laughs> well, they don't. They speak Southern. <clears throat> now, I've never been able to quite master Southern, but I've learned to listen Southern. Anyway, I'm down there. I'm in the middle of hepatitis. I'm taking interferon. I'm not feeling good. I got a new job. I went to work for Tom Ivester. That means you work 24 hours a day. And he doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do. He just says, go do it. All this is going on, and I'm sustained by the sense of the presence of God. See, no matter whether I feel good or bad, it has absolutely nothing to do with my life. I wasted my life. I used it up. I took it. And now it doesn't belong to me anymore. So good or bad, you get up every morning and you hit the line. And I'm hitting the line and I'm not feeling good and thinking, I won't go into a long story. But I woke up one morning at 6 in the morning and my sense of God's presence was not there. And that's a shocker. I've been living that way for 25 years, waking up and starting my conversation. And it wasn't there. And it didn't frighten me and I don't know why. But I have some habits that I've developed here, and one of those is prayer. I do not get out of bed or even open my eyes until I begin my conversation with God. So I'm saying, whoops, uh, I need to know you're here. I need to know you better. I need to know your presence. And uh, my phone rang at 6 in the morning. So I got up, and it was old Billy Payton. Billy says, I was seven years sober last week, and I drank. And Alan's 12 years sober, and he drank. And we got another kid in the group that's getting ready to drink. 
And the guys tell me that every now and then, if we ask you, you'll just sit down and show us what you do and read the big book over a weekend. And uh, those people don't seem to drink anymore. Would you do that for us? And I said, uh, I've got another habit. I said, sure, Billy. So we got that squared away, and I hung up and began my immediate search for God again. Uh, damn phone rang. <laughs> Somebody else wants to talk at 6.05 in the morning. And we got that taken up, and I hung up and immediately began my search for God again. And a phone rang. And I finally got it. See, he does talk to me directly. If you would know me better, get to know my children better. If you would know my presence, be in the presence of my people. So you're a blessing to me. That brought me back into the sense of God's presence. You're my blessing. The uh, I need to talk to people. What's been, once once the hand of God t- hits you, you can't shut up. Can't. You got to tell somebody about it. And I'm the kind that if you weren't here, I'd be on the street corner out there hooting and hollering, telling somebody about it. So you're a blessing. I get to tell people about it. And the more I tell about it, the more I get back. So I need more and more people to talk to. So thank you for coming this morning. Because I'd have talked to him. He'd gotten a whole load. <laughs> I did not know I was alcoholic when you found me, and I did not come looking for you. You came looking for me. Uh, at the time you found me, I was certified as a sociopath type 2, psychopath, and a manic depressive drug addict. That's what you would see if you looked at me. I hid my alcoholism behind some really high drama. <laughs> And I'm going to talk to you this morning about some of that drama, but please understand, the drama does not define alcoholism. But I like drama, and I like to have people cry and laugh. And I like to remember how pretty tough it was. What happened to me with my first drink is described in the book Alcoholics Anonymous by Dr. Carl Jung as a spiritual experience. Ideas and conceptions that used to rule the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and an entirely new set of conceptions and emotions begins to dominate them. Fifteen or sixteen years old, we went out east to Denver with a bottle of bonded bourbon some guy from our Air Force Base had gotten for us to get drunk and have fun. I didn't know what either of those experiences was, but I'm game. And a couple drinks of bonded bourbon, and I was transformed. I went into the evening stupid and short and angry and frightened. And a couple drinks of bonded bourbon, and I became gorgeous, taller. (laughs) I was transformed. It didn't just ease the way I felt. I was a different human being. There was a, a guy in my high school class who hadn't been treating me very well, the bully. And I was going to meet him back at the drive-in and whip him. And I could have done it, right in front of everybody. And there was a little girl in my class who hadn't been treating me at all. And uh, we were going to have a visit. I could have done it. And you know, that's not a bad deal. It's really not a bad deal. If that's all it did, I'd buy everybody here a drink. But it is in my nature that if one works, take ten. That anything worth doing is worth overdoing. <coughs> and that's just my nature. And I didn't know that. So by the time we got back to the drive-in, instead of me being able to whip the bully and visit with a girl, what the folks saw was my partners carrying me around by the elbows while I puked in the driveway and nearly died of acute alcohol poisoning. I couldn't even smell whiskey for four years without gagging. <clears throat> but I am alcoholic. That brief period of time where it was all right for me to be me and for you to be you, 
I would have paid any price in the world for it and did to get that for a few seconds every day. There are sounds that go with life, and there are sounds that go with drinking. Social drinker. <laughs> Isn't that disgusting? <laughs> Certain kind of hard drinker. <laughs> Alcoholic. <sighs> That's the sound of relief from unbearable psychic pain. <clears throat> No, I can have a drink. That was medicine. (laughs) I was in my first federal penitentiary when I was 19. Not because I was a big-time gangster. I've been in three penitentiaries, and the big-time gangsters don't even get to one. And I, I wondered for many years, what the hell's wrong with me? I did not plan that. My plan, when I was 17, because I didn't fit in Denver anymore, it gotten too small for me. Uh, ego is something I really do understand. I joined the Navy in order to save America from the communist menace. And uh, to come home a hero. Oh God, I wanted to be a hero. And there's sounds and pictures in my mind that go with hero. I would come back after winning the war (laughs) with a slight limp that I got from throwing myself on a hand grenade to save all my buddies. (laughs) And I'd walk down the street in my little blue suit and my little hat cocked just a little bit out of regulation, but I'd earned it. All these medals show you that I earned it. And I'd walk by the guys and I'd hear that sound. That's him. (laughs) In hushed tones, filled with awe. He lets me talk to him, you know. I'd walk by that little gag little girls and hear the sound that every young boy just longs for deep in his heart. (laughs) Not bad. Instead, I'm in a federal penitentiary in Tokyo, Japan. (laughs) So what's wrong with me? What caused that? I didn't know what happened to that until you told me. So you guys have given me everything I know about alcoholism and about how to live with the fact that I am an alcoholic. In the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth describing men who had worked on a business deal or something that would be settled favorably to them on a certain date, and they took a drink a day or two before and they missed their appointment. And I found the first of my duck feathers. I adored the Navy. I loved the Navy. I was a radarman and a radioman, and we'd been at sea and shooting up Korea for 11 months, cussing and spitting and chewing. It was fun. <laughs> and they'd give me a 24-hour liberty, and I might get back in 26. 28. Uh, on this particular occasion, they gave me a 24-hour liberty, and 23 days later, when I got back, <laughs> they were gone. <laughs> they were on their way to Korea, and at that time, that was a shooting offense. It was pretty serious stuff. <laughs> See, when I drink, I get lost and can't find my way home. And when you're in the Navy, that's a felony. I, I ran with a kid from Appleton, Wisconsin, who was also alcoholic. We are slick, you know. He managed somehow to get us on a Pan Am Clipper, and we beat the ship to Japan by three weeks, which means they couldn't <laughs> shoot us. And we thought we were pretty slick. Now, I don't know how mad the skipper was when we didn't show up. He was probably grateful. 
And I can tell you how mad he was when he saw us standing on the dock waiting for him. (laughs) I had a drink in Long Beach, California, planning in 24 hours to return to something I truly enjoyed and loved and wanted to be a part of for my entire career. 22 days later, I'm in Pershing Square in Los Angeles, mooching drinks and doing and being willing to do anything at all necessary to continue drinking, but I could not go back to that ship. I've been doing things that are contrary to who I am, and these are the ones that will eat you up. We don't deal much with guilt here because guilt's an easy deal. Guilt is when you caught me breaking one of your rules, and all I've got to do is just stand still long enough you'll tell me what I have to do to clean it up and the deal's done. Shame is the one that gets me. That's when I've caught myself breaking one of my standards. There's no way out. There's no punishment. There's no way to rectify it. And this whole deal, thank God, isn't about me being able to not do the things that are contrary to me. It's becoming a person who could not do those things. Anyway, I'm 19 years old and I'm on absolute rock bottom. I came home with a bad conduct discharge. And some memories uh, to why I did not join the Marine Corps. Uh, they're some tough cats there. <laughs> I remember clearly as they marched me over to the brig, this poor, innocent, frightened little thing, because I'm sober now, and I'm a poor, innocent, frightened person when I'm sober. <laughs> and this huge Marine guard with loaded rifles marching me over, and I hear him say in a matter-of-fact voice, Kid... I just came from Quadsline. I shot me a prisoner there, and they sent me here. And I'm told that if I shoot me one more, they're going to send me all the way home. And I said, oh, you're in trouble, kid. (laughs) I know about deep fear. Bottom is a simple place. That's why I wake up someday and realize that all of the things I have in mind for my life are not going to happen. That's bottom. It's just not going to happen. And when I was young, I could pick up new dreams and uh, new plans. I could bounce. Christmas week in 1967, the bounce was gone out of me. There was nothing left to do. And I didn't get sober because of the truth. I'm here because I ran out of lies. There weren't many left. You know, I, I weaved all kinds of lies. It, not only could I not differentiate the truth from the false, I didn't even care. Life is going to be whatever I need to make up today to get through it. And I had reached that place where I couldn't get up in the morning until this 16-year-old kid I had turned on got over and gave me an injection of speed so I could get up and go steal something and get enough money to get enough boost to go back to sleep. And along the way, maybe buy some food for the kids because for some ungodly reason, they kept giving my children back to me. <coughs> My two little boys' mother split when she, Sean was uh, a year old and Terry was two and a half. So I became a single parent, homeless, before it was even fashionable. And uh, in those days, that didn't happen. So we moved a lot, and my alcoholism was catching up with me. We'd been on the road for four and a half years. The only break in that was the visit I made to my second federal penitentiary in 1966 for a little indiscretion I'd committed. Then they gave the boys back to me. So the lies were simple. I I weighed 133 pounds. By the way, I'm not a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. And I've used a lot of drugs. I please urge everybody here who may have had that experience, find out what you are. Some of you may be both. Some of you may only be one. Please find out. This thing needs a foundation of truth under it for it to work. And I can't help you find out if you're a drug addict, but I can sure as hell help you find out if you're an alcoholic. And if you are, whatever else you got wrong with you, stay here. Don't go anywhere. Anyway, I'd have told you that week, we're fine. The boys and I are fine. The family's intact, and that's very important to me. It always has been. The family's intact. We have a place to live. It's warm and dry and clean. We have food. And it was a lie. The family was not intact. 
there were two little boys living with a madman. And we were on ADC because I couldn't work. And the check hadn't gotten there yet. So I was stealing in order to, to feed us. It was a lie. And I began to see that lie. I come from a functional home. And I apologize, but I do. I, uh, I mean, there's times I feel left out even in AA these days. I, I'm the only alcoholic in my family. Although, please, dear God. Start praying for my older boy. <clears throat> he's begin, he's fi finally given me some hope. He cut me out of his life about two and a half years ago, and I truly did not understand why, because we'd, we'd been doing pretty good. We'd made amends, and things were going pretty good, and all of a sudden, he and all the grandchildren have disappeared. Well, I found out from my granddaughter the other day, he's been drinking. So now there's hope. But I can't deal with him. You must deal with him. I'll watch over your kids. You watch over mine. Coming from a functional home, I know what Christmas is supposed to look like. They bring a tree in from the outside. It's a real tree, by the way. No plastic. We dressed it with uh, tinsel and lights. And we used to sew popcorn and let it hang off the tree, and you could eat it off, right off the tree. It was fun. Presents under the tree. The, the house smelled good. It was mold cider with cinnamon sticks in it and hot chocolate with marshmallows, and they were genuine marshmallows, not these sissy little things. <laughs> Fill the top of the cup, and you got to suck them off before you could even drink it. And... and one of my strongest memories, because my parents were truly loved in the place where I grew up, was the numbers of people that would come by and visit them during Christmas week. Folks in and out all the time visiting. <coughs> Nobody came to see us. Even my parole officer made me visit him. He wouldn't come by. And that hurt. And I'm beginning to disintegrate, finally. On the 24th, the kids and I took a walk because I am... In my natural sober state, restless, irritable, and discontent. So we took a walk, and we found a dollar in the snow, went to the Christmas tree place, and found out on that day they'd give me the biggest tree on the lot for a dollar. The guy looked at me. I weighed 133 pounds, and I'm dragging these two little scraggly kids. It was mercy. And I'm an alcoholic. We took the biggest tree they had. And we had a seven foot basement ceiling and we had a nine foot tree I keep that one fresh please don't let go of all your pain some of the pain is very worth carrying forward not so much as a reminder but I can look you in the eye and you can see my pain and you're not alone uh We also went to the Public Merchandise Mart in Denver, and uh, we didn't have any money, but this kind man gave me a shirt, a little cowboy shirt, and a pair of boots for my kids, so each of them would have one present. And uh, the boys wrapped up everything they could find in the house in blue paper towel and put it under the tree for me. And some more, we just broke. <coughs> I will be forever grateful to my father. Because when we got to the folks' place on Christmas Day, and it would never occur to me not to go there, he met us at the door and he said, Don, I'm sorry, but your mother said I can't let you in here anymore. She can't stand watching you die. And a, another lie fell apart. Leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And it was a lie that day, and I could see it was a lie. So I believe the power of God went to work in my life before I ever surrendered to anything. And I don't know why. And then Dad snuck us into the house anyway, which, which broke my last lie. Nobody loves us. Nobody cares whether we live or die. And he made a lie out of that that day. And I didn't have any left. I went home filled with self-pity. 
and then walked past the self-pity into the truth. And the truth was, on that day I had become completely useless. There was no reason for me to be here. I think the bottom of all human pain is useless. When I feel useless, I must go. As long as I can be useful, I can stay with you. If I can't be useful, I must die. Or surrender. And I had nothing left to surrender to. I've been surrendering since I was little. I, I came out of the Navy with a bad conduct discharge and a penitentiary hitch behind me. And everybody knew I was sick. So I turned myself into a science fiction writer and joined Dianetics. No, I like L. Ron Hubbard. I, I know him. But he's a science fiction writer. So when I think about my choices as to what I should do to get better, I just remember, on my own, I'll go to a science fiction writer. You guys said, more better you go to God. I had nothing left to surrender to, and you must surrender or die, and so I died. I took a two-month supply of the garbage I was using and pushed it up my arm and drank everything in the house and laid down and died. And I believe I did die. I have not from that moment had a thought of a drink or a pill or a fix. It's over. It's done. I surrendered entirely. And I've never taken it back. I don't understand when you talk about taking it back. I do behave willfully from time to time. <laughs> but it's different than taking it back. When I woke up in the morning, I really felt rotten. <laughs> and the police were at the door. They had nine charges, and the first one called for three years to life in the penitentiary. I still owe the federal government five years. And the DA promised me he'd bring the others one at a time if I beat that one. But I was through, and I really didn't care. So I had gotten into that wonderful state of being that if I sponsor you all, I will encourage you to get to I'm now a failure at living and a failure at dying. <laughs> you know, don't come to me and say, I feel like I'm going to die. So let me help. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it done so we can get on with this. <laughs> Big Book says that's what's going to happen. We're going to die to self. <laughs> so I detox in the Denver County Jail. Wonderful experience. I love it. I, I now work in corrections because God's got a wonderful sense of humor. I've got the keys to the place. <laughs> I remember Tom standing outside of North Carolina at that time had 92 prisons and 15 of them were mine. And I remember when the captain handed me the keys, and I thought, I wonder if he knows what he's doing here. <laughs> I, uh, my, my, my work today is very simple. I, I develop and kind of keep the heart beating in alcohol and drug treatment and corrections in Colorado. Uh, parts of it anyway. We're expanding. So I get to work with them on a regular basis. And I got thinking about what that's all about. See, I, I believe the making of amends is an ongoing process. It means to change. And there are some very subtle amends I can't make directly, like, here's the money, bub. And I have a desperate need to pass on this message to people who don't know that you don't have to be that way anymore, that you don't have to be that way anymore. And the only way I can do that is to show up, because I'm not that way anymore. My words mean nothing. My life is, counts for everything. And I didn't realize it, but I, I caught Tom's vision, and I finally figured out what he's doing. So I started doing it. We have created an environment where those who can't come to us to get the message can get the message. I just made an arena where I get to go 12-step on a regular basis. I can't work with them, so I hire other people who can. But the arena is there. One of the things that came to me after I'd gotten out, I, I'm, I'm blessed because in order to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous where I came, where you came and found me, we had to go through a 12-step study school before we were allowed to go to the <coughs> meeting. They had a meeting on Friday night where they let real people in from the outside. And we were not fit to go to that meeting until we had 
entered into the recovery process. That was the attitude. It may sound harsh, but it works. Every Saturday afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, we give up our yard privileges, our movies, whatever, and we went to school for three or four hours. The first thing they did when we got there, these guys said, you knew people for the next five weeks have nothing to say. If you knew anything at all, you wouldn't be here. Okay. It's true. Uh, one of them, first thing I ever heard from a was a convict saying, my name's Doc and I'm an alcoholic and that means I'm powerless over alcohol and guards and drugs and all of the other circumstances of my life and my life has become unmanageable. And if any of you smart bastards think you can still manage your lives, look at the reward the state just gave you for the nifty job you've been doing. <laughs> so when you talk about fine sponsorship, I understand fine sponsorship. The people who have sponsored me along the way have been incredibly loving because they told me cold, hard truth and give, give one tinker's damn about how I felt about it. And truth without love is cruelty. And confrontation without a real answer is brutality, so they don't participate in that. But they love me. And they had a real answer. And I didn't know how much they loved me until I got to thinking about it. Please, God, don't take my brains away from me. Just don't let me use them for me, that's all. At a time when I had no name, I was 38,984. And I was in a place where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to go to a federal hospital in Texas because everybody concluded I was sick. God knew if I go to a hospital, I'll be out in six months, sicker than ever. Because I've got a little <clears throat> game I play. When you catch me, I won't listen to anything you have to say. Because you'll tell me what you think is wrong with me. You'll tell me how long you think it's going to take to fix that. And then you'll give me all the symptoms I have to present to you to convince you that I'm getting better. <laughs> and that's my very best game. I've been playing it since I was little. And I'd have died under that. They offered me a deal. They said, if you'll plead guilty to a reduced charge so we don't have to have this messy trial, we'll give you a one and a half to three, we'll suspend it. The federal people have agreed to take you back and take you to Fort Worth, Texas, to the hospital and fix you. And I signed off on that right away. And if you know about power, you know that's where I should have gone. The power of the state and the power of the federal government are such that they can move bodies from here to there when they decide to do that. And five days later, I'm in the penitentiary instead, by the grace of God. I don't need fixed. I'm not broken. I'm sick. My sponsors also said, we don't have enough spare parts to fix you. There's too many missing. And those that are there are really warped. I watched by example. They took us through the steps, the way they are in the book Alcoholics Anonymous in five weeks. So I'm one that believes it can be done that way. I, my personal opinion, it was designed to be done in about ten days. But then we were having working with people who had all day to work on it. We've tended to complicate it a little bit, and I say we because I do too. Uh, I used to welcome those 10-hour marathon inventories. Don't you dare do that to me again. <laughs> See him. <laughs> I had a series of spiritual awakenings in this little process. My previous view was that a spiritual awakening means boom. Now I've got patches on the elbow. I get a little place on Lookout Mountain with French doors, and as the peasants come by, I'll dispense a little wisdom. And the rest of my life, I will listen to Mozart and read good books. No, that isn't what it's about. I am locked in sometimes to the event, and I think the event is what it's, what's real. The event's only a marker on the journey. The spiritual awakening means I wake up from a deep sleep. And here's what my spiritual awakening was. I had spent years with the misunderstanding that I was a human being trying to have a spiritual experience. And what I finally woke up to is that I am a spiritual being having a human experience. And what that does for me is make me available to the entire human experience. Bring it on.
I'm not going to get out of this alive anyway. So what's there to worry about? Okay. And I'm getting to the age where I'm having to look that one right in the eye. I don't think I have but about 30 years left. I came to believe in the power of God because I watched it walking. My early sponsors were not Boy Scouts. One of them had committed a double murder in the middle of a stick-up, killed some people on the street in a shootout. The man telling me the story was incapable of committing the act. And I could see that. He said that. I challenged him on it. He says, that's true. I have been changed and God changed me. I didn't care who changed him. He'd been changed. So that's all I want to be. I know that I can't apply behavior modification to my life and make it work. The only thing that ever gets modified, I will change my behavior as long as you're watching. Don't look away. I need to be changed into the kind of person who's no longer capable. And let me tell you why. And this is painful. But I, I, I've been giving some thought the last few years as to why did they think I was a psychopath and a sociopath. <clears throat> In 1966, I had stopped trying to be Superman. I really tried to be a regular citizen. In my heart of hearts, all I've ever wanted to be was a good father and a good husband and a good citizen and a Boy Scout. You're looking at a Boy Scout. Sick, I'll help you across the street and not ask you whether you want to go or not. But uh, couldn't pull it off. And I'd stop that and I'd be, tried to become super freak. I almost made that one. We, we came close. Even the freaks didn't want anything to do with me at the end of the road. They were afraid of me. See, I used to bring surprises with me. <clears throat> you never knew who was coming when I came into the door. Being unpredictable is a survival technique. When you're worried or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. <laughs> Create a diversion. The only surprises I bring home today are wrapped in fine ribbons. I will never surprise you. It would never occur to me to show up in your house without calling first and making sure it's okay I come. My worst character defect turned out to be rudeness. Imposing myself on you without ever asking whether you wanted me here or not. And one of the things I know about God, because I learned it from God, is God's not rude comes by imitation only. So if I'm going to be one of his children and have him demonstrating through me, that's how I come, by imitation only. I also know that once you invite it in, you're stuck with it. <laughs> There's a warning at the third step. Don't say this unless you really mean it. Because once you say it, you can't get off this train. There's nothing worse than watching somebody who's decided to live a spiritual life try to change their mind. Oh, it's awful. They can't even be bad anymore. They try, and it just doesn't work. In the midst of that period of time in 1966, a group of my friends at the time, if you can call them that, there's an underground in the United States, and I was part of it, had gotten a load of marijuana as far as Juarez, and their driver had gotten arrested. And they needed somebody to go in and get it. And uh, they said, well, call Fritz. He's crazy. So Albert called me, asked me if I wanted the job, and I said, sure, Albert. I'll, I'll do it. I didn't do it for money. I did it for prestige. There wasn't enough money there. It's chump change what I got. But I was the only one in the entire country that had what it took to go and get that. I'm a hero. <laughs> she must be an ally. <laughs> and I'm pretty sick. I'm desperate. I'm, I'm drinking my way into the into the end of the road. <clears throat> Totally caught up in ego. I'll do anything. So I said, yeah, I'm not an idiot. I made them rent a van. 
and get it out of the hotel where it was if anybody's going to get caught it's during that transfer then I put it all in an air mattress it fits perfectly in an air mattress to cut the odor down put dirty diapers on top of that and then put my two little boys on top of that and when we hit the border crossing I screamed at them so they'd be crying and screaming themselves because they don't mess with you when you got screaming kids my boys were never in any danger from the authorities. Had we been caught, they'd have been very kindly taken to some safe place away from me. What I did to my kids for purely selfish reasons, I screamed at them. I must find a way to be a person who cannot do that again. You gave that to me. Why do they think I'm a psychopath? Because that's what I look like. My character defects are simply character traits that are very defective. I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to get the job done. Spiritually, that's dedication and commitment. I'm sick, that's sick. <laughs> they took my children away from me a couple of times. The last time, when I came out of the, the penitentiary, it was interesting that day. I still owed the federal government five years, so when I came to the parole board, they paroled me to the feds. Nobody thought I was going anywhere, and I prepared to go on back. Because during that year, I truly had found the meaning of this program. In my sixth week, they gave me the new group and a big book. And with the help of my sponsor, it's now my turn to take them through the same deal. And that's all this is about. That's what it says at the beginning of this book. We're more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. <laughs> to show others precisely how we recovered. That's our purpose. This is no longer about me about you. My sobriety is not for me. It's for you. My life is none of my business. The conduct of my life is entirely my business. And I need to learn how to conduct myself. And I learned that from people who knew how to conduct themselves. Bruce had been transformed and changed. He was no longer capable of killing anybody. Phil Gutierrez couldn't hurt people. Roy Nichols couldn't stick people up anymore. And, of course, the bottom line was they didn't drink. That was important. But they said, not drinking is not enough. i got to tell you something. I truly believe this. And I would never offer anybody just sobriety. One of the reasons I drank is because I can't stand being sober. Meaningful sobriety will work for that. And meaningful sobriety means I only feel complete when I'm with you. See, I am you, and you are me. And I'm not complete unless we're passing this on. Anyway. It's been an interesting journey. I wish I had time to tell you the whole story. And I do, by the way. I just don't have time to tell it from here. Uh, we need to meet along the way and have coffee and and breakfast and talk in the lobbies and Denny and I have talked over the years strange man but I love him <laughs> I just met Don even stranger but I love him too I have history with people now I'm talk about the benefits of this way of life I have history with people I used to burn my bridges I'd use you up and then discard you because at one point you didn't even really exist for me. It was me and who I needed you to be. In a fifth step that changed. There became two people in the room. Me and the guy listening to my fifth step. But that whole thing changed. Tom and I go back. I remember Tom from my very first conference. This little old country boy had been on an airplane for all day. It was in liberal Kansas. And you can't get from Charlotte, North Carolina to liberal Kansas. And he hit the door about five minutes before your talk didn't even have time to dress or throw water on his face 
because the big timers were there. Bob and Marceline were there, and he had to impress them. <laughs> <laughs> that was our first conference, and I watched this thing go into action here. And I wondered what he had. And now we're peers. We like each other. We have history. I have history with my family. I have been married to the same woman for almost 23 years now, and we haven't had a fight yet. It's completely unnecessary. She whipped me anyway. (laughs) I agree with her. She's sane. She thinks I'm the cutest thing she's ever seen. And I agree. I'm now... My life is filled with grandchildren. I was to never see my children again. They told me that. I said, don't ever try to get them back because you won't. Don't ever try to impress me that you're going to be a good father. You'll never be a good father. But I'll watch you. If I ever think you've not to anything, I'll bring them back. And they did. And now we have grandchildren. And they irritate me sometimes. I'm getting old. But I love having them around tell you a couple little things about the meaning of life for me. One of them's name is Gianna. She is a pistol. She's 26 months old now and I went upstairs the other day and she's sitting at the computer running the mouse and playing a little game we got for her. Poo. She's playing poo. I'm thinking this is something. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. None of us set this up for her. She went up those stairs, got that disc, turned on that computer, put it in the drive, booted it up, and now she's sitting there playing it. Frightening. (laughs) So we put the disc up on the dresser where she couldn't reach it. And about ten minutes later I went up and she's got the ladder from the bunk bed. (laughs) So we're just going to wash them every day. My children are not afraid of me. They used to be. They're no longer afraid of me. They lived with us for a year. We we believe that in today's economy, our young people are never going to get their own homes if they don't get a break. So all of ours get one year in our basement. Now we put them in the basement because we want them to be uncomfortable enough that they want to get the hell out of there. <laughs> So for a year they're living there and, and Gianna's my baby. A little kid. Her dad thinks it's his baby. It's my baby. Working in corrections, part of my job right now is that I am the liaison between the courts and our unit, between the district attorneys and our unit, and the jailers and our unit. I, I get to go try to explain to them how to do this thing right. Uh, and that means I have to dress up pretty nice once in a while. If you're going to deal with judges, you ought to look like them. <laughs> I haven't met a judge yet that wears an earring, so I don't either. I don't have anything against earrings, but whatever arena you're playing in, you just have better luck if you play right. Anyhow, I'm headed for this to talk to this drug court judge. <clears throat> really does not understand. He's never been in criminal justice before. He's been in civil law, and now he's dealing with criminals, and he really doesn't understand uh, alcoholic criminals at that. And they're buffalo on him, and I got to... Anyway, I'm headed out the door, dressed up in my fine duds, and at that time I had a Jerry Garcia tie. It's still necessary for me to make a statement along the way. I may look like him, but he doesn't know what that means, and I do, and I'm more comfortable. My daughter hands me Gianna so I can kiss her goodbye, and she upchucks all over my And my normal reaction to people puking on me is not that good. But I'm holding that baby, and she's spewing, and all I can think of... They trust me with their babies.
what God has done for me, I have been restored to innocence. I can tell you stories, horror stories, but I can't do that. I've been returned to innocence. I'm not tough, but the tough guys quit fooling with me a while back. I have always wanted to be able to tell you how much I love my God. And uh, I stopped doing that early because when you do that as a kid, they kind of make fun of you. So I quit that. And so where does God bring me? Knowing in my heart's desire, I just want to tell you how much I love him to a place where you not only encourage it, you insist on it. If we're not talking about God, you go to another table until you can find somebody who is. My brother gave me the greatest gift I've been given. It took 22 years for he and I to make peace. And that's perfectly correct. We should never have made peace. Chuck Chamberlain helped me get clear with that. He said, we single-handedly destroyed everything worthwhile in our lives and we have no right to ever expect anyone to even talk to us again. Ever. And I had betrayed my brother. I was his hero. I was his big brother. And he watched me hurt the family. When I was 19, I was in the penitentiary. When he was 19, he was writing music with Stan Kenton. He's one of the world's foremost musicians. He's a synthesizer musician. They take him to Europe every year, to Russia and the Scandinavian countries to teach. He's incredible. Grew up right down the hall from me, by the way, in the same house. <laughs> But as we grew up, we had common dreams, and he watched me shatter the common dreams and hurt the family. I just betrayed everything about it, and he wasn't about to trust me, period. And over a period of time, we just kind of, I just put my life in order. That's all we can do here. Twenty-two years sober, he invited my wife and I over for supper. And after dinner, he said, Don, I don't know if you and I can ever be friends, but this was pleasant. We can do this again. And we began that piece at a time. Okay. I love drama, but you must not bring drama to those that you have harmed. You must be very gentle with them. Easy. And if I get to live with the pain for a while, so be it. I said to Bruce once, I feel so guilty. And he said, you should. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> When I was down in North Carolina for two years, one of the ways I made amends to my mother, she told me what she wanted. She just wanted me to be happy, so on a regular basis, I go by her house happy. <laughs> Pretty well straightens things out. That's all she wants. On one of those visits, my uh, brother came in, and I was sitting at the table just visiting with the folks, and I had my leg crossed over, and right out of nowhere, he kicked me on the bottom of the shoe. And he said, you know, Don, I'm really glad to see you. And he was shocked. Because he really was. <laughs> Hadn't felt that for years. He said, look, next time you're in town, let you and I go up to the cabin and do a little fishing. And I knew what he was saying. We have a little cabin up in the high country. We need to go talk with him. There's no phones. And I came back and we spent the afternoon up there talking and playing cribbage. Unfortunately, he forgot cribbage is an institution game. <laughs> and I, of course, I'd forgotten how to play it. I had to have him help me learn how to count and do it and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. My brother and I have concluded we're trying to do the same thing. He's trying to reach people's hearts and souls with his music. And so am I. I'm here this morning to touch you, to reach you deep down where you live, and if I haven't done that, I've wasted your time. I want you to see my heart and soul, and I want to touch yours. So I make music with this thing. So we had common ground there, and then he said to me, Don, there's something important that I need you to know. <clears throat> he said, I'm 58 years old now, and I believe I've made a decent contribution to life. Most important gift I've ever been given. That's the bottom. And I can tell you who I am, who I know I am, and tell you that you don't just tell that to anybody. It's got to be somebody very, very special. So my heart soared. He and I are healed now. 
but the greatest part of the gift is that I've been trying for 30-some years to tell you what you mean to me. I've told you about the statue of David and the anvil and the lake and all vain attempts to try to get across how much I truly love you. Well, I've got it now. I'm 65 years old now. And because of you, I believe I've been able to make a decent contribution to life.